Gospel of Luke and chapter 22 and verses 29 and 30. Luke 22, 29 and 30. This is how it reads in the older version. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, even as my Father appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and ye shall sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then in the New English Bible, this rather remarkable translation, you, you are the men who have stood firmly by me in my times of trial, and now I vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. You shall eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones as judges of the twelve tribes of Israel. I vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. And then also in the gospel according to Luke chapter 12 and verse 32 Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 32, this one sentence. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now just remember what we said last Thursday evening about that word kingdom. In uh, the original it is primarily an abstract noun denoting sovereign or royal power and authority and then only came to mean concretely the, the territory and people ruled over. And so when you think of this, fear not little flock, for it is your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's not just territory, um, it's not just people, it's sovereign power. Uh, sovereign authorities, your father's good pleasure to give you sovereign power and authority. And then there is Matthew 16 and verse 19. Matthew 16 and verse 19. Speaking about the church, Matthew 16 verse 19. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Unto thee will I give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 3. <clears throat> Verse 21, Revelation, chapter 3, verse 21. He that overcometh, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. And in the same book, chapter 2, verse 26, 27, and 28. Revelation 2 from verse 26 
and he that overcometh, and he that keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers, as I also have received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. I vest in you the kingship which my Father vested in me. Now, as you all know, I've had some problem over um, how to... Um, condense into the times that we have, the few times that we have, all that could be said on this tremendous and in my um, estimation a vital subject of reigning with Christ or as I have also entitled it being called to the throne, the character of true overcoming and kingship. Um, on Sunday morning I spoke <coughs> about one of the lives in which God has illustrated um, uh, one of the characteristics, at least, um, in kingship, in true kingship. Because in this matter of having dominion or reigning with Christ, the lives of the saints in the Old Testament are full of instruction. Through each one, as recorded, the Lord has revealed and illustrated essential characteristics of kingship or overcoming or having dominion or whatever way you like to look at it. We must never forget that the overcomer is God's norm, not his especial. And that's where most people make their great mistake. They think the overcomer is some kind of elite, whereas the overcomer, as we find it in the Word of God, is really God's norm. They are the normal child of God, the normal servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord as God designed them and intended them to be. But in days of decline and days of backsliding and days of sin and unbelief and compromise, then there are just a remnant or a number of those that God uh, uses and um, because they're ready to go on with the Lord, he can take them on and they are made the forerunners or the harbingers or the advance working party, however you like to look at it, that goes before and, as it were, um, prepares the ground for the rest. They follow the Lord the whole way and become the means by which the rest enter into blessing. Now, on Sunday morning, I spoke just for the time we had available on Abraham, and the lesson, of course, that we have in Abraham is the lesson of faith, of absolute faith, that everything has got to begin with God. And if it has not got its origin in God, then it will not come to God's end. That's the lesson we got on Sunday morning from Abraham's life. That whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. Therefore, the most essential thing, one of the most elementary things, 
for us who want to go the whole way with God is to make sure that we really have got a Christian life and Christian service and a church life that has its origin in God. It began with God. It came to us from God and is sustained by the grace of God and developed by the Spirit of God. Then we know it will reach God's end. And, of course, once we know that something is to begin with God, the answer on our side, the response from us required, is the obedience of faith. Well, now, we can't say more about Abraham. I believe it's recorded, for those of you who were not able to hear, that foundational characteristic of kingship. Absolute faith in God. And then the second one on Sunday evening we spoke about was Isaac, and we spoke about reigning in life, through Jesus Christ. Romans 5 and verse 17. Reigning in life through one, even Jesus Christ. And you remember the real lesson from, Abraham, from Isaac we found was very simple, that Isaac is in some ways apparently, as recorded in the word, he may have been a quite different person in himself, but the word records him as a rather, in some ways, rather dull uh, character. All he ever did was dig the wells of his father. He, he sort of is a, like a valley that links two great mountain ranges uh, together. Abraham on one side and Jacob on the other. But he is the one who links those two uh, together. And he's very important because wells always speak to us of life. And Isaac is himself a symbol and a type of resurrection life. Remember when his father offered him up, he received him back in figure from the dead. Uh, he became a symbol, a type of resurrection life. And the one thing we have to learn for to know and experience life more abundant, the life of the Spirit of God, um, uh, uh, rivers of living water flowing out of us, the one thing we have to learn is to be a receiver. That is the only lesson in the matter of life. We have to learn to be like Isaac. We've just got to receive everything and just allow God, as it were, to go on with that work in us. Well, now we've talked quite a bit about that on Sunday evening. Now, tonight, I want to take up two um, lives, um, if the Lord helps us, in the time we have for tonight. The first one is Jacob, and if we have time, I want to take up Joseph. And these two lives are the most wonderful illustration, again, of characteristics of kingship. For it is not only a matter of absolute faith and of divine resurrection life and power. Jacob, in many ways, is the completion, or was meant to be the completion of what God began in Abraham. He began something in Abraham, continued and developed it in Isaac, and he wanted to complete it in Jacob. And that's why forever afterwards, God is known as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. As if these three um, somehow represent uh, together the most vital aspect of overcoming or of reigning with Christ. The problem with Jacob was the strength of his own self-life. Now this is a perennial problem and if you have not met it yet you have not gone very far along the Christian way. 
because you can have real faith and you can have a real experience of the life of God, but the problem which faces us sooner or later is the strength of our own self-life. We know what God wants. We know what the purpose of God is. We have begun to see something and have an under, we have an understanding of what the Lord is driving at. And furthermore, we have an experience of life. But the thing that gets us down, not at once, but again and again and again, is the strength of our own will. Somehow or other, we find we have a stubbornness, we have an obstinacy, we have areas in our lives that will not yield. We know what we should do. We know the issues that should be settled, but we won't do it. And uh, God has taken Jacob to illustrate and reveal once and for all time this whole matter of the need for us to be delivered from the strength of our own self-life. The self-life manifests itself, manifests itself in many differing ways. In one person, it can be self-righteousness. In another person, it can be swindling, as with Jacob. Um, in another person, it can be a kind of obstinacy that will just not yield. But it manifests itself in all different ways in different people. And of course, the stronger the personality, the greater the problem. By nature, Jacob was not a prince with God. Nor was he one who blessed others. Nor was he one by nature who was a worshipper. Yet the wonderful thing is that it was this man who far from being a prince with God was a bargainer with God. Every time the Lord appeared to Jacob, he immediately struck a bargain. It is a most incredible story. If you read through, it is really interesting. I'm not just putting it over in a fanciful way. When he had that tremendous encounter and God gave him when he ran away from home, you remember, fled from his twin brother Esau, and at Bethel, um, he lay down and went to sleep with a stone for a pillow, and he had that dream vision where he saw a ladder going up from earth to heaven and saw angels ascending and descending, and above the ladder he saw the, uh, the Lord himself standing, and when he woke up, he said, this place is a terrible place. It was called Luz. Um, but he said, I will call it Bet-El, the house of God. For this is the house of God. This is none other than the gate to heaven. And then the Lord appeared to him. He built an altar. And he said, Lord, if you will bring me back to this place, I will build you a house. Now, at that point, the Lord wasn't over-interested in anyone building him a house. That was to come later with Moses, uh, and so on. The Lord was not interested at that point. In, he wanted something else. But you see, uh, um, Jacob couldn't help himself. There was no worship. He didn't bow down to the ground and worship the Lord. He didn't prostrate himself before the Lord. The first thing he said, now, Lord, if you do this and this and this and this, then you, the Lord, will be my God. 
Isn't that kind of him? You, the Lord, will be my God, and I will build you a house on this place. Now, God never wanted a house built for him in Bethel. He wanted it in Jerusalem. And later on, when Israel parted from Judah, they built a house of the Lord in Bethel, which was an abomination in the eyes of the Lord, and one of the causes for the wrath of the prophets. But you see the strength of our natural life? You see, when the Lord appears to us, when he reveals, and think of it, how thrilled you would be if you saw in vision uh, a staircase going from the earth to heaven, and you saw angels. Think of it, you'd be so thrilled to see angels, not one. Most of us would be thrilled if we saw one angel, but saw all those angels crowding up and down, intercourse between heaven and earth, communication between heaven and earth, and the Lord standing beside that ladder, as if saying, now I want heaven and earth to be one. You would have been thrilled, and if you realized, this is the house of God, this is the house of God, you would have been more thrilled. You see, he saw something. He saw something. But then the strength of his natural life came out and he said now Lord uh, you've, you've, um, you've revealed something to me it's obvious you want something of me right now if you bring me back here uh, you shall be my God and I will build you a house right on this spot <coughs> there are thousands of so called churches built just in that way all kinds of Christian work is done just like that half of it is real vision, and the other half is the strength of our natural life and worldly wisdom. We do it, we say, now Lord, come on, you need me, you do this and this and this for me. I'll... No, he, he wasn't. He was not a prince with God, he was a bargainer with God. And you find it two or three other occasions through the record. He bargained with God. He wasn't someone who blessed others. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, By faith Jacob blessed the two sons of um, Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. That is the wonderful last picture we have of Jacob in the Bible, that he blessed people and his blessing really meant something it wasn't just a few words that he uttered in the name of the lord it was a real blessing something was imparted by his blessing now J jacob was never someone who could bless people uh, it's a hard word i keep on wanting to say he wasn't a blesser but you know what i mean um he he was not a person who was able to bless other people he stole others blessings his twin brother, he stole his blessing as well as his birthright. That was Jacob's nature. I don't know if, if you're like that. You're the kind of person you can't be let out belonging fellowship because you steal things all the time. You ruin anything. It's an acquisitiveness. Something that just wants to have everything under its own control, wants to manipulate it, wants to sort of um, uh, get a control, a domination over it. Well, that's Jacob. He was certainly not a worshipper, he was a swindler. For 21 years he swindled his uncle, and his uncle, of course, swindled him. But I mean, between them, they, he was no worshipper. We don't have any record in all those years that he ever worshipped the Lord. It wasn't in his nature. And therefore, you see, we have to ask ourselves, can someone who is a bargainer with God, someone who's always out to make, to strike, a, a, a bargain to get the better 
of God and anybody else, someone who will go to extraordinary lengths to steal both birthright and blessing from his own twin brother, and someone who is, by nature, can't help it really, a bit of a swindler, can that person ever come to the throne? Now, of course, the problem is that many people with their sweet evangelical piety could never think of themselves as Jacob because they've probably never been exposed to the kind of temptations or the kind of circumstances that could reveal what they are. And therefore we think, oh, of course not. But here is the glory of the whole matter. Jacob, God took, as it were, the minimum and said, now by taking Jacob, I want you all to understand that no one is beyond the transforming power of the grace of God to bring them from this to that. The bargainer with God can become the prince with God. The, the um, one who steals others' blessing and birthright can become the one who imparts blessings to others of real value. And the one who was a swindler can become, in the end, a real worshipper. But the cost will be that the strength of his natural life will be crippled forever. He will limp to the end of his day. Of course, we don't quite know exactly what did happen with Jacob when he wrestled with the angel. I see now that nearly all the modern commentators, both Jewish and Christian, all consider that he was dislocated. His hip was dislocated. Think of that. What pain he must have been in. They didn't know too much about manipulation in those days or anything else. And so for the rest of his life, he walked with a crutch or with a, uh, a staff. And that's why in the Hebrew it says, the last picture we have of him is that he is leaning on the, um, on the um, bedpost. It's not exactly the word, but it, um, it's the, bed, the end of the bed. Um, because he just got himself there because of his hip, and he was there, he blessed those two boys, and then he worshipped. As the last picture we get him, in, our, in the Greek it says, on his staff. Well, both are true, because generally speaking, he could never do without his staff. Um, but when he was in bed, he didn't need a staff. And when he sat up, he did need the end of the bed to hang on to. Um, so it doesn't really matter. It's neither here nor there. But the fact of the matter is, it does speak of something that God did to cripple that man in order to bring him in to kingship. It is, I think, one of the most wonderful pictures we have in the Word of God, of the grace of God and the love of God, because we must never forget and we shall never understand, even the most rank Arminian in this place cannot understand those words, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. They are mysterious, essential mystery. But the fact remains that God somehow set his love upon Jacob and loved him out of swindling into blessing and out of stealing or cheating into being a one who could bless others, into a prince with God. The problem was his old nature. Well, I don't know if you've yet discovered that's your problem. If your problem is sin, we know what to do with it, don't we? We at least know that first there is an answer to sin. 
in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We know that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. We must be only days old in the Lord if we don't know that. And the second thing we know is this, that we must cease from sin. Uh, we cannot just continue in sin. We know that too. And I believe that most people, um, once they've seen sin in their lives and confessed it, will forsake it. But our problem, generally speaking, is not sins, it is self. That is the problem. That gawky, strong-willed, self-life that appears when we least expect it. We go to a place and we have a great blessing, we think we're broken and we go away full of it and we find out within weeks that the old Adam has reared its ugly head once more back where we began. We find it in, of course, a number of places in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6 where it says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away, that so we should no longer be in bondage to sin. Our old man, you will see in your modern versions, our old nature. Well, it's the same thought again. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 and 21 and 22. You, you did not so learn Christ, if so be that ye heard him and were taught in him, even as truth is in Jesus, that ye put away as concerning your former manner of life the old man that waxeth corrupt after the lusts of deceit. Is a perfect commentary on Jacob. That waxeth corrupt after the lusts or desires of deceit, and that ye be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man that after God hath been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. We have the same problem again in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18 and 19. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Here's a Christian speaking, a child of God speaking. For to will is present with me, but to do that which is good, is not. For the good which I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I practice. That's the problem, isn't it, if we're honest? That we know that we should do certain things and we don't do them. It's amazing sometimes, like on Sunday evening, afterwards people come to me and say, you know, I, knew, I knew that I should have gone forward, but they don't. I knew that I ought to get this and this and this settled. And then there are things which we know we ought not to do, and we're doing them. The problem of our self-life. Look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the authorized version and the revised standard version and most of the modern versions, I think the New American Standard Bible, um, all use the word conformed. Be not conformed to this world, um, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. But I think this is a wonderful rendering, this uh, old standard version of 1901, that ye be not fashioned according to this world, fashioned, molded according to this world. It's the same idea, isn't it? It's conformed. Somehow or other, we are just doing what the world does. We act like the world does. We have the spirit that the world has. Our responses are the responses of the world. The Bible says, And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is interesting that's exactly the same word as in Ephesians, wasn't it? Did you notice that? When it said about the old man in Ephesians 4 and verse 23, that ye be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's there that our whole problem is. It certainly was with Jacob. My word, he had a mind that was as sharp as sharp could be. He had a mind that could strike a bargain in an instant. He saw the game and his mind worked overtime on it. He couldn't help himself. I'm quite sure afterwards he thought, oh, should I have said that to the Lord? He couldn't help himself. It was his mind. Fashioned according to this word. Well, fashioned according to this world. Do you find this problem? Well, I do. Um, the point is that I find that the greatest problem, if we're honest, in the Christian life is ourselves, myself. That is the problem. My, my, I want to do the will of God. I want to follow the Lord the whole way. I know exactly what I should do. But I find that there's so often in me something that before I can bottle it or, or, or get hold of it or apprehend it or arrest it or imprison it has done the thing before and left me with the damage. <laughs> Don't you find that? That's the whole problem. We're really honest with ourselves. So often, because we live in a cuckoo land, a kind of cloud cuckoo land, where somehow or other we don't really realise what we are or what we're doing. But once we become aware of ourselves, we suddenly find that we do these things before we've hardly had time to breathe. You see, it's natural. It's to do with the mind. As a man thinks, so he is. It's all to do with the mind. Poor old Jacob. Don't be too hard on him. You know, some people sit on great judgment on Jacob. Oh, dreadful man. Dreadful man. Unfortunately, lots of others have inherited it from him. <laughs> dreadful man. But, you know, it just is not true. He wasn't such a dreadful man. He was a very astute, clever businessman. I don't want to upset anybody. But, I mean, he was. He was a very clever, astute businessman. That's all Jacob was. He was a clever man. He was the kind of man who makes a million very easily. Saw a bargain, struck it, could see how he could engineer things quickly, manipulate things in the right way, in his estimation. And before he knew where he was, he's got a million in the kitty. <laughs> He 
was only doing what comes naturally. And I'm quite sure that lots of people are very jealous of such people. And then it's very easy to say, swindler. <laughs> swindler. Point is, they're not too good at it. That's the point. <laughs> the old swindler is just as much in them, but they're not too clever. Jacob was a clever man, and he becomes, therefore, the great example of the strength of our natural man, of our self-life. You see, there was something in Jacob that was very lovable. After all, he put a value on the birthright, and his beloved athletic twin brother had no time for it. Jacob put something on the blessing which only dimly his brother began to realize. You see, there were things about Jacob. He had deep, deep down in him a heart for the Lord. But his problem was his self-love. He could not find an answer to his self-love. Now, the wonderful thing is that we see, exemplified and expressed, in this life of Jacob, the work of God's grace. We find it, I think, most wonderfully in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son. I think that's one of the most wonderful words in the Bible. For whom he did foreknow, them he also um, foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I find that's the right kind of predestination. Here is a foreordination of God concerning this child of God. God has foreordained that that one should be conformed to the image of his son. And that's the wonderful thing about Jacob. God took Jacob on because he had foreordained that Jacob should become Israel. He had foreordained that he should be conformed to the image of his son, that somehow or other, by the sheer way that God would lead him, he would come not only to a self-revelation and to self-despair, but in the end would come to the most wonderful experience of the transforming power and grace of God. Now people tell me that should all come at conversion. But my dear friend, I can only tell you this, it doesn't always happen that way. I know people who have been so marvelously converted that they never needed anything else. They entered in at the beginning and just went on with the Lord. Thank God for such people. Some of us are not like them. I can only say that when the Lord met me in a deeper way later on, I hardly thought I'd ever been converted in the first place. That's all I can say. And I have a feeling that Jacob would probably say something on the same line too. The Lord was with him. He was in a relationship to God right at the beginning. But you see, there was this strength of his own natural life in the things of God. Bargaining with God. Manipulating the things of God. Somehow or other. Well, God met him. Jacob met his match in the Lord. And the wonderful thing about the grace of God is that we always think the grace of God was the angel of the Lord that wrestled with him all night. I don't think that was just the grace of God. The grace of God was allowing Jacob to swindle his brother out of his birthright and then pinch his blessing 
by a sheer deception and thus have to run away to the only other biggest swindler in the Middle East. <laughs> and then those two swindlers were locked up for just over 20 years in the same household, swindling each other for 20 years until Jacob became so sick of swindling that he was ready for the angel of the Lord. You see, some of us say, why didn't the Lord meet me? Why didn't he meet me years ago? Why all this waste? If only I'd known it. My dear friend, I'm afraid that you wouldn't have even responded if the Lord had met you years ago. That's the tragedy of our nature. So often we have to go all the way through this long way and as God deals with us and does something with us, finally we come to the place where we're ready for God to do something. transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. What was the will of God for Jacob? That he should become the father of the house of Israel. That his name should be given to the people of God forever. That was the will of God for Jacob. And Jacob was as far from it <coughs> as it was possible to be. But the grace of God got to work on him and I always think of that wonderful word in 2 Corinthians and chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. How did Jacob get changed? He got changed when he saw the Lord. And do you know what he called it? He called it Peniel, Peniel, the face of God. For he said, I have seen the face of God and I have lived. Now in Hebrew, um, the, wor the word used, presence of the Lord, is very much like the face of the Lord. It means the same thing. Because in Hebrew idea, a person's face is their presence. It is their presence located. Very good idea, you know. And I often think of it particularly with the English. Um, you know, because so often our congregations look so morbid. They don't mean to, but they do look morbid. When they're mine, that's an aside. Um, um, you know, our face is our presence. <laughs> Before Jacob could become Israel, the Lord had to bring him to see himself. There could be no kingship without such a work, nor any overcoming, nor will there be with you. You will never come to kingship till you see yourself. You will never overcome until you see yourself. Thus his years with Laban. I've said to many of you before, but I'll say it again for those who have never heard it, that Laban, uh, that Jacob must have been scandalized when after quietly swindling his uncle for seven years for the hand of his beloved younger daughter Rachel, when the wedding came, and all the nuptials were over, 
And finally they got away and the veil was lifted. He found Leah. It was the biggest swindle he'd ever known. Have you ever heard of anyone swindling a person over marriage? Well, perhaps some of you do. I don't know. <laughs> but really and truthfully, I think that's really bottom. That's going right down to the very bottom, isn't it? Can you believe it that Laban must have said with his wife, to Leah, now dear, you keep your big mouth shut. <laughs> if you as much as open your mouth once in this whole proceedings, the game will be out. You just keep your mouth shut, dear. If you want to get married, you just got to sit there, be quiet, stand there under the veil, do nothing. Just try to walk like your sister, act like your sister, do everything like your sister. And what they did to dear sister, I can't think. <laughs> Whether they sent her off or somehow bound her or gave her something to knock her out for a few hours, I don't know. But it is an incredible story. It is, when you think about it, it's an incredible story. But can you hear the scandalized Jacob saying, my own flesh and blood, my own flesh and blood. Do you think it's possible under the whole sun for my own flesh and blood, my uncle, my mother's brother, to do this to his nephew? not possible surely I mean if he was a distant relative one could understand but he is my uncle and I have worked for seven years and hard <laughs> I don't suppose at that moment there came a whisper into his ear and what about your twin brother twin brother not your uncle or your nephew but your twin brother, you were born one minute later. You swindled him out of his birthright and out of his blessing. No, such is the, the delusion of our self-life, the strength of our self-life, that we can deceive ourselves and delude ourselves at that point to think, how could we possibly, anybody, do such a thing to us? However, he appeared to get over it and agreed to work another seven years for Uncle Laban, for dear Rachel. But you know, they were all swindlers. You read the story. Leah was in on it. She was always doing things in the home. And later on, of course, you know the story of Rachel. When Jacob was finally so sick to death of the whole lot that he said, we'll go back. We'll go back home. I don't care if my brother kills me. We'll, I'd rather go back to my brother and face his wrath than stay a moment longer in this swindler's household. And out he goes back home. And on the way, you know, two days' journey out in Gilead, suddenly they see a cloud of dust and camels coming fast down the track. And what is it? It's dear old Uncle Laban with a posse of his men. And they stop them. And they say, the family gods, they're gone. And Jacob draws himself up to his full height and says, family gods, I've never ever worshipped idols and I never want to have anything to do with them. Do you think I'd take idols? Search, everybody. And his uncle Laban, who understood his nephew quite well, said, I will. <laughs> and he searched everybody. And there was his beloved Rachel sitting up on the camel, looking pale and weak. And when father comes to her, she says, 
I'm not feeling too well, Papa. You don't have to search this camel, do you? And he says, no, darling, and goes on. And under the saddle of all the family gods. Well, you know the story. She was a swindler as well. Now, it was, that, was, that was the last straw for Jacob. It was that night that he met the Lord. It was as if his whole house collapsed around him. He had never thought that Rachel could be guilty of such a thing. But they were all. And he saw himself in Laban, then he saw himself in Leah, and then he saw himself in Rachel. And finally he was ready for the angel of the Lord. And when God finally appeared to him, and he saw the face of the Lord, Then he persisted. Now, here is the most wonderful thing about Jacob, and, and it's true of every overcomer. You will never, never come to the throne unless you persist, unless you endure. And when your moment of opportunity comes, stay up all night. Now, you may not wonder, you might wonder what on earth I'm talking about. I know people who stayed up all night and just warmed themselves out. I've known people who fasted for things to try and sort of persuade the Lord to do something. But there comes a time in the sovereignty of God when your moment comes. You'll, it'll come back to you, forget it now, but one day it'll come back to you. When your moment comes, when God really visits you, when he's got you in a corner, and when there's no way out and you know the Lord's there, you hold on to him. Don't you let him go. The Lord loves it. Just get hold of him. I won't let you go. That's exactly what God wants. Forever afterwards, God boasted about Jacob and said, he wouldn't let me go. The prophet, I think, Hosea says, and he strove with the Lord and wouldn't let him go. Persistence. We, I have not, I've been unable to trace it down, but there is one rabbinical tradition that the name Is Yisrael, Israel, means God persists persevere. Certainly true, isn't it? Jacob would have never been anywhere if God hadn't persisted. And somehow or other, I think God put something of that persistence into Jacob himself. Well, now, what I find here is that we have a marvelous picture of Jacob in the end. He blesses and he worships, leaning on his staff. The natural strength of his self-life is broken. He has seen the face of the Lord. The last years of Jacob are filled with sorrow and beauty. First, he meets himself in his twelve sons continually and has a terrible time of it as he sees what he was in his own flesh and blood and learns more and more deeply that only the tran being transformed by the renewing of our minds can ever really do anything. But the most wonderful thing about this man was that he became a prince with God. And not only a prince with God, but a person who could impart blessings. Are you a person like that? Someone who when you meet others, others get a blessing. You don't even have to say a word. I know people who don't even have to, they don't have to open their mouths. Just to be with them and you get a blessing. Impart a blessing and a worshipper. All God's overcomers are worshippers. What a change has come into this man. No longer what he gets, but what he gives.
No longer his satisfaction, but God's satisfaction. If the sun rose in Jacob's life on a twister, a swindler, a cheater, a supplanter, it's set on a worshipper. And the Bible summing up the whole of that man's life forgets, covers all the swindling and all the cheating and all the bargaining and says, by faith, Jacob blessed the two sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. It is to me the most wonderful little phrase, therefore, that we find in Isaiah and chapter 33 and verse 23 and the last phrase. Now, you won't find it in your modern version, but that's why I'm hanging on to this one. The lame took the prey. The lame took the prey. That's an overcomer. That's what it means to reign with Christ. Crippled. That was the price. That was the cost. But through being crippled by the Lord, he became an overcomer. He gained the victory. He took the prey. And of course, the other wonderful thing to any who know their Jacob-like nature is the fact that forever afterwards, God calls himself not the God of Israel. Now and again he calls himself that. But he calls himself hundreds and hundreds of times the God of Jacob. <coughs> Just so that there may be an encouragement to every single child of God here and all through time, that God can bring a person like Jacob to the place of spiritual nobility, spiritual royalty. Psalm 46, verse 7 and verse 11, the God of Jacob is our refuge. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now I'd like to just say something about Joseph. Because in many ways, you see, whereas Abraham, Isaac and Jacob each take one particular aspect, Joseph draws the whole three together and as it were, binds the whole up into one. He is the end of a movement. The next movement is with Moses and Joshua. That's the next movement. And it's very, very wonderful when you see it like that. And, of course, Joseph is in a unique way a picture of an overcomer. He is the not normal picture, the picture that most people take um, as illustrating an overcomer in a unique way. Let's just look at a few scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. You know those words, I think, quite well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And raised us up with Christ and made us to sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Well, that's what you could write over the life of Joseph. Made to sit with him in heavenly places. And then another word in the New Testament that sums up the life, the lesson of the life of Joseph is in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 and it's this word, if we endure we shall also reign with him. The old version says, if we suffer we shall also reign with him. Now really when you look at Joseph he is a remarkable person. Psalm 105 is a prophetic psalm explaining his life to us. Psalm 105, I'll just read from verse 17 or verse 16. Psalm 105 from verse 16. And God called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them. Joseph was sold for a servant. His feet they hurt with fetters. His soul entered into the iron. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of peoples, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. What an amazing prophetic insight into the whole story of Jacob. The psalmist is saying, God sent a famine. And then when he sent a famine and broke the whole staff, man's natural sufficiency, then he sent a man before them. That man was Joseph. And here is the remarkable thing. He made that man go down and down and down before he went up and up and up. Before he came to the Pharaoh's throne and became the supreme power in Egypt, he had to go right down into Pharaoh's dungeon and stay in Pharaoh's dungeon, seemingly rotting, forgotten, unthought of, unheard of. Listen again to his beloved father Jacob's prophecy over him in Genesis and chapter 49 and verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a fountain. His branches run over the wall. And then it goes on some more wonderful things. But this is very interesting. Do you get the picture? Here is a fountain. Here is a tree. It has fruitful boughs for, that, for those within the wall. But his branches go over the wall to those who are without. What a picture of, of Joseph. He not only had something for the people of God, he had something for the unsaved. The whole of Egypt was saved and delivered by Joseph. That is overcoming. That's what it is to reign with Christ. Oh, it's a wonderful picture. Now we have the revelation of divine purpose concerning Joseph. And we get it, I will only mention it, but if you want to follow it up, here are the scriptures. Genesis 37, from verses 5 to 11. You remember his dreams? Oh, he was only a boy of 16, 17. And he had these magnificent dreams of sheaves of corn. And all his brother's sheaves bow down before his, including his mother's and father's. And then he saw the sun and the moon 
and the stars, and they all came and bowed to him. Even his father told him off about that one. <laughs> Do you mean to tell you your father and your mother would come and bow to you? Do obeisance? The word was do obeisance. Now the interesting thing is this. Never scoff at someone to whom God gives a vision of a dream. Now I don't mean some of those fraudulent things that now and again one hears about that are so way out that one feels ill. But because some people throw the baby out with the bathwater, when someone really has seen something from the Lord, they tend to say, oh, oh I don't. You know, if, if Joseph had come to me in this company, a boy of 16, and said, I had a dream, and in my dream I saw all of you bowing down, I would have thought. <laughs> well, I would have said to the other brothers, I think we better pray for him. the Lord knock him about. Now the point is that that's exactly what the Lord did. That's exactly what the Lord did. But you can't just say, there's nothing in it. Why did the Lord give Joseph the dream? Now listen, later on, the psalmist says, until the time came, the word of the Lord tried him. That dream was the word of the Lord. And in the end, when Jacob had been shaved of all his pride and self-sufficiency, it became a tremendous comfort to him that there was going to come a day when the rest in that dream would be fulfilled. But of course, when he was young, he didn't quite look at it like that. But it was divine revelation. Actually, God had unveiled his future. Who would have believed that that young man, the, the youngest but one in the whole family, would one day be the supreme ruler of the greatest, the most populous nation in the whole of the Middle East? And that he would become the means of salvation and deliverance for the whole family of Jacob? This purpose of God to bring Joseph to the throne and make him fruitful to all could not be fulfilled through fleshly methods and fleshly means. Now our way was this, that if this was God's purpose, well, now then, we want to get the man into a college of some kind, put him through the course, train him in a few public functions, get him public speaking, a few other things like this. I mean, we don't sell him into slavery. We don't get him knocked about by Midianites, by his other brothers, and then by the other lot, I can't remember who they were, um, who finally took him from the Midianites or so on. I mean, we wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. Then sell him as a slave into an Egyptian house, a household, and then, through sheer faithfulness to God, when he didn't really perhaps feel the need to be so faithful, after all, he was many, many miles from home, and there was nothing to be lost by being unfaithful and possibly everything to gain by being unfaithful since it was his master's wife. You would have thought. You wouldn't think to put the boy into prison and to leave him rotting there. You see, this is our whole problem, isn't it, with overcoming our ways, our methods, again we're back to the old thing of the world, the ways of this world. Joseph cannot come 
to such a place of reigning without much suffering and much discipline. What amazing words those are again in Psalm 105. You see, his father said, Joseph is a fruitful bough by a fountain of water whose boughs run over the wall. That was absolutely right. But um, how did he become fruitful? It says here, he sent a man before them. Psalm 105, 17, Joseph was sold for a slave. His feet they hurt with fetters. And this is the Hebrew. His soul entered into iron. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tried him. That's suffering. I think of Philippians 3 and verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. There is no way, dear child of God, to come to kingship. There is no way to come to the throne. There is no way to reign with Christ. There is no overcoming without knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. I know of no other way. I think of another word in Acts 14 and verse 22. Through much tribulation we shall enter into the kingdom of God. We enter the kingdom of God. We know very well by the salvation of God, by being born of God. That's not tribulation. But to enter into kingship, to know something of reigning with Christ, to know the producing of a character, of spiritual capacity, that requires suffering and discipline. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 7. And by reason of the exceeding greatness of the revelations that I should not be exalted over much there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me that I should not be exalted over much. Concerning this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me and he, he hath said unto me my grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect through weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, it seems to me that whenever God gives revelation, he gives a cross. I do not know of anyone in the ministry of God who has a real understanding of the things of God without some inexplicable cross. For it is a principle with God. We see it again, par excellence, in Paul, that the higher he went, the deeper he saw into the purpose of God, into the heart of God, the more God allowed this thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Now this is a thing we don't like and that's what makes me sometimes so suspicious. In some meetings where it seems to be there is real vision and real understanding and everyone gets so excited and there does not seem to me to be any thorn in the flesh. 
Who would have ever thought that God would give a messenger of Satan? What do you think Potiphar was to Joseph? What do you think his ten brothers were to him? What do you think the Midianites were to him? A boy spoiled and marvelously brought up his father's darling to be so treated, so ill-treated. To him it must have been like the messenger of Satan because God had revealed something to him. <coughs> Remember that when next you ask to see something. God knows what he's doing with us. And then again, I find something else very wonderful too here. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. And then he goes on, you know the verses, many of you very well. We are pressed on every side, yet not straightened, perplexed, yet not under despair, pursued, yet not forsaken, smitten down, yet not destroyed, always bearing about in our body the dying of Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death worketh in us, life for you. That's the overcomer. Death worketh in us, life in you. That's the principle. We must suffer, you get the joy. And not that kind of suffering where it is perfectly apparent that you are suffering for the Lord. Oh... It's so hard to go on with the Lord. And I'm going on with the Lord. And I've got things that are coming my way that are hard and tough. You know that kind of thing? No, the person who really suffers for the Lord knows what it is, which is that the psalmist says, the help of my countenance are my God. There is no such thing as leaving your face sallow and unwashed so that everyone knows you've been fasting. You give it a good scrub, clean it up, and look shining. And no one knows. That's the principle of the thing. No one smells any burning, any singeing on you. They don't know that inner trial. They don't know the way you're going. But it's death in you, life in them. That's the principle. After all, if, if, if servants of the law were to say to you, you said to them, now what about the future? And you say, perplexed. You would say, perplexed? I mean, we send people to Bible college so they won't be perplexed. <laughs> we don't expect people to go through theological training and all the rest of it to come out and be perplexed. They have, should have the answers. That's why we send them there and that's what we pay them for. Expect anyone to be perplexed? I mean, this kind of testimony like this, Pressed on every side, perplexed, pursued, smitten down. Doesn't seem much of a testimony. But there's another side to it. Life in them, death in us. Now that is the whole principle that we have here in Joseph. It's the materials of the city. Gold, precious stone, pearl. Every one of them comes through suffering. Gold refined so it's as transparent as crystal. You've never seen such gold in your life. So you could see clean through it, that means it has been refined in a way that no gold has ever been refined on this earth. That's a picture of the fellowship of his sufferings. That's discipline. Precious stone produced in the dark places of the earth by tremendous heat and pressure. 
And pearl, you know the story of the pearl, a little bit of grit on the softest part of the oyster. And what it tries to do is to eject it by drawing out of the life that is within it some kind of fluid which it wraps around the grit to try and get rid of it, to make it less hurtful, but it still stays. And then again, and again, my grace is sufficient for thee. And every time we prove his grace sufficient, another coat goes round the grit. I wonder how many here have got a bit of grit in their lives. And you want to get rid of that and you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, this thing's got to go. This thing's got to destroy my testament. It's destroying my home. It's destroying my life. It's destroying my Christian life. It's destroying my victory. I'm not going through. And you don't understand that God has allowed that thing in you. If you would only trust the Lord, then you will find that there is a life in you by the Spirit of God which will put a coat around that bit of grit and another coat. And, another. and before you know where you are, you may be a bit exhausted, but at the end you've got a pearl. God has got a pearl, and those pearls are the gates of the city, through which people go into the city and out of the city, the place of judgment and counsel. Wisdom comes no other way. So you see, we have Joseph. To come to the throne, we must only, not only know suffering, but how to let go, how to humble ourselves, and so on. You remember what the Lord said in Matthew 23, verse 11 and 12? Here it's so very simply put. Matthew 23, in that <laughs> terrible message of denunciation, you have this wonderful little word um, in the middle of it. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be humbled, and whosoever shall humble himself shall be exalted. James 4 and verse 10 says the same thing again, as if the Lord wants to repeat the word. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall exalt you. And you have it again in the words of the Apostle Paul when he says in Philippians 2, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being on an equality with God, thought it not a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and became obedient down and down and down to the death of the cross. Wherefore also God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You have to go down to go up. Now, the way this world thinks of it, you've got to go up. To go up, you must go up. And if you push others down on the way up, well, that has to be because that's the only way you can get up. Others have got to be pushed aside in order for you to get up. That's not God's way. God's way to the throne is you go down. And the more you go down, the more you go up. Don't be afraid. The problem is not living. The problem is dying. Once we know how to die, once we know how to let go, once we know how to lose ourselves, we have the secret. For it is the infallible law of resurrection. The great key in Christian life, the great key in Christian service, the great key in church life, is to how to let go. How to fall into the ground. How to go down. We don't know this, do we? Do I know it? Do you know it? Oh, that God could teach us this lesson from the life of Joseph. Joseph 
had emphasized their bowing down to him in his dreams. That's what he said. He said, and I saw you all bowing down, making obeisance to me. Interesting, isn't it? Experience made him their salvation and deliverance. The most beautiful chapter in Genesis, or at least one of the most beautiful, is Genesis 45, verse 1, where it says that when he could no longer withhold from them who he was, he told everyone, go out. And every Egyptian in the place went out. And then he stood before them, he said, I am Joseph, your brother. And he wept so loud that the Pharaoh and Pharaoh's servants heard the crying. He didn't say, now then, what about that dream? It's come to pass. Come on, everybody. Bow down. I've been waiting for this for years. You evil lot. I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to enjoy your bowing down. But that's how often we feel, isn't it? We feel, well, I'm going, to get, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to, because one day when I'm there on the throne, I won't be bothered about little things like that, but we're going to enjoy them, sort of, um, us being vindicated. But not Joseph. He doesn't want them to humble themselves. He doesn't want them to... He says to them in the most beautiful words, if you look at it, in Genesis 45, <coughs> and verse 5, he says, and now be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. And then verse um, 8, and, and verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and to save you alive by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. I think that is overcoming. There's nothing elite about that. Not elite in the sense that he's superior and thinks he is superior. He has got something the other brothers have not got. He has a spiritual capacity that doesn't even want them to be angry with themselves, nor to grieve for hours in repentance. He doesn't want them to grovel. That is overcoming. That is kingship. He has come to the place now where all he wants is their blessing, their increase, their fruitfulness, their preservation, their deliverance, their glory. That is kingship. That is the picture we see of our Lord Jesus, who did exactly the same. Didn't care for himself, didn't preserve himself, didn't try to win anything for himself, not even the throne that was beyond his cross only for us, all for us. Now you've got it once more, and I'll close with that, in Genesis 50 and verse 19 and 20, those words which are so wonderful. When he was, his father Jacob died, and the brothers had terrible guilt co complex, as all do who've ever done anything wrong to anybody even though they've been forgiven. For years they go on thinking that that person could never really forgive them. And so when Jacob died, they thought, now he'll take the opportunity of getting rid of us all. And this is what he said. Joseph said unto them, fear not, for am I in the place of God? 
And as for you, ye meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Well, I think there we have the most wonderful picture of um, kingship. There is no other way to the throne than this one of suffering and discipline. God does not want that faceless, characterless bureau bureaucracy that we know so much about in this world. He wants men and women conformed to his own image, to his own son, who have been perfected through suffering. For you see, when a person has suffered, they are both firm and gentle. Any person who has suffered has a firmness in their character and a gentleness. <coughs> they have compassion, but no compromise. And that is divine kingship. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, how we need to learn some of these lessons. And when we think of Jacob and Joseph, we're all found out in some way, Lord. We need thee. And we pray, beloved Lord, that thou wilt watch over thy word to perform it in all our lives. O oh God, make us a people who, having been called to the throne, come to the throne, who've been called to reign with Christ, really do, Lord, even now, here and now, in this life, begin to know what it is to be above and not beneath, to sit with him in heavenly places. So, Father, we give ourselves to thee and thank thee for this time in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.